0: I have published more than 200 books and sold almost 9 million copies. It's from a guy who never had a formal education in English. I can't believe I wrote the whole entire thing. (laughs) If you have some help and creativity and passion, you can do anything.
1: Do you ever feel like the person most getting in your way is you? Do you have an inner voice that whispers, you can't do it? Welcome to Tiger Therapy. My name's Pippa Woodhead, and I am no therapist, but I know firsthand that the big bad walls of career dreams are self-doubt and limiting beliefs. For the past few years, I've been interviewing business leaders about work, and I have felt like an imposter for, well, a lot of these conversations. Each week I'll be speaking to someone brilliant who's achieved success on their own terms. Join me as we hear about their life, their career journey, and find out what role, if any, self-doubt and limiting beliefs have played a part in their story. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of holding myself back. A key thing I'm learning is no matter where you come from, you get to choose your mindset. So lay back on the Tiger Therapy couch and let's meet today's guest. Today, I'm speaking to Japan's number one best-selling personal development author. Ken Honda is often called the Zen Millionaire, and he's a rare combination of philosopher and practical businessman. He is a prolific writer, having published almost 50 books in Japan, selling more than 8 million copies. His English-language book, Happy Money, The Japanese Art of Making Peace with Your Money, aims to impart what Ken has learned about money, attracting wealth, and why our finances don't have to be something we struggle with. I, of course, had questions about how we often have limiting beliefs tied to money and whether Ken has ever struggled with self-doubt. Ken, I've heard you say, human beings are slaves of money. All of us suffer because of money, so my mission is to free people of slavery. Can you tell us how you ended up on this mission?
0: Thank you for inviting me for your show, and I feel very honored to be here. You know, it, it's a long story, but to make it very short, I was born and brought up in Japan, and I was brought up by my unique father, who was a successful tax accountant. He wanted me to be strong, so he taught me how to do karate, and also business and entrepreneurship. So I can be financially independent when I grow up, which I did. So he taught me everything about money and especially money IQ side. And later on, I learned about money EQ side from other mentors. But money IQ and money EQ can bring you very strong foundation of life. And later on, you can build on anything on the very solid grounding is what they taught me.
1: So what exactly is the difference between money IQ and money EQ?
0: Money IQ is financial independence, which deals with knowledge, investment and business, entrepreneurship and that kind of thing. And money EQ is more of emotional intelligence that when you have money on your side, you can be successful. But a lot of people are in a fighting mode. So either you win or lose. So your attitude is like a warrior. No matter how much money you make, you cannot be satisfied. Mm-hmm. So you have to be satisfied and also find peace with money. Otherwise, first million will make you feel like you're not enough. So you want to make the second million and the third million and the first billion and the second billion. There's no end to it. So you, you need to have uh, both financial IQ and financial EQ to be happy and abundant.
1: Mm, that's the problem, right? Too much is never enough. <laughs>
0: that's so true.
1: So there's a story at the beginning of your book, Happy Money, where a woman at a party asks to see your wallet. And, and you explain in, in the book that in Japanese culture, this isn't so unusual. In my culture, this would be a very strange thing to ask someone. But could you, could you tell us this story and
0: what she was looking for? Uh huh. It's not common now, but it's a while ago. There was this TV program and magazine articles of how celebrities deal with money. And then wouldn't you be interested if your prime minister or your king and queen or somebody like Justin Bieber, you know, do they have a wallet and what kind and what's in it, you know? And then people are obsessed with celebrities' wallet and should they have a big one or small one or... Like a credit card or whatnot. So when this woman asked me, can I take a look at your wallet? It's like, okay, I feel like I was becoming a celebrity. And I said, okay, <laughs> here you are, but don't run with it. And then she said, it's okay. And she took all the bills out and she was checking something. She said, this is good. This is great. This is fun. And she put all them, all the bills back together and then handed back to me. And she said, can you pass the test? I said, what test? It's great. Your, your money was smiling in your wallet. That means you made everybody happy and then received money. That's a good sign. I said, oh, that's interesting. And she said, I forgot to introduce myself. I'm psychic and I see things that other people don't see. And she explained, on the other hand, if you are taking advantage of other people or if you do the work that doesn't bring you joy, and then your money is crying in your wallet or angry in your wallet. Upset in your wallet, look sad on your wallet. And so I can tell from the money uh, that's inside uh, your wallet, can tell you how you made your money. So, like, whoa, that's interesting. And I started thinking two groups of friends who are having smiling money and the other group, sad money.
1: Wow. So, I mean, a lot of people will listen to the idea of money having an energy. And think, oh, I don't care if my money's happy or not. I just want the money. <laughs> Why should people care about their money being happy?
0: That's a very great question, Pippa, because you know it just uh, changes the quality of your life. You know, a lot of us are working hard, and then when we come back, we feel tired. And with us, we brought some energy, which could be violent energy. You know, when we are fighting. In business world, we feel so frustrated. And when we come back home, we might bring our violent and also frustrated energy with us. So that's why we can be mad at our kids and mad at our partner or the loved ones. And when we bring happy money in your business, you feel so blessed, so happy. And then you came home with peaceful energy in appreciation. So happy money makes you more gentle more generous, and a happy, kind person. So when you're dealing with happy money, after coming home, you bring in happiness and appreciation. So your dinner table will be lots of laughter and fun. So just remember what kind of a f- household uh, you had. Did you have a happy feeling in your house? Or did you have a sad, frustrated, tense feeling in your house?
1: Mm. So... Growing up, we all get a lot of messaging about money from a young age. Most of us are taught from a young age that money is a a scarce resource, that to be without money is a terrifying place to be. My father was always saying things like, you kids think we've got a money tree out in the garden. What should our money messaging be? How should we reframe it?
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I want uh, all the parents to teach their kids that money can be so much fun. Money is uh, for your enjoyment. Money can bring you happiness. I want you to teach uh, your kids that way because money has both sides. Uh, Actually, my father told me money has two faces uh, on on coin. And one side is uh, uh, angel. The other side is devil you know a lot of coins have uh, faces on that so i was uh scared to look at the other side because you know when this is angel this could be the devil and he said money will pull out the best and the worst part of you and it's true with money people can be so terrifying with money people can be violent with money people can be very kind and loving so if you have kids i want you to teach them that money can be both very angelic, money can be very devilish, because it brings out the worst and the best part of us.
1: Mm. Is that saying, um, I'm not going to get the saying right, something like money shows you who you really are, you know, it shows people (laughs) who they really are, can often bring out the worst in people, right? So true. So my goal with this podcast, Ken, is to explore the mindsets that hold people back in life and how to turn these around. And it struck me whilst Researching you and your work, just how much limiting beliefs and bad money beliefs are related. Could you talk to us about this?
0: So since we're four or five, we realized that uh, there's something called money. That's why we are hooked into this money game, you know, without us agreeing, you know, do you remember that you signed a contract? I'm going to play the money for the rest of my life. (laughs) And I still remember when I was the second grade, I was invited to my friend's birthday. That was the first time I saw an elevator in private people's home, you know, an elevator is something like hotels and big buildings, yeah. right? Wow. You have an elevator, but for him, it's natural, right? You're like one, two, three. And like <laughs> there, you have three stores in your, you know, in your house. So, and then, uh, that is like a big shock. And on the other hand, you may visit your friend's house and then there are only two rooms. Like, do you have only two rooms? So, uh, when you are six or seven, you kind of wake up to the reality of the world. And then as, as we grow, we find out that our, our parents are poor, our parents are middle class, our parents are, are comfortable with the money. And then everything we do gets determined by money. So we have, like, say, uh, when we go on for lunch, if you're friends and if we are going to pay separately, you know, would you go to a lunch that costs you about 20 euros or $20? Or do you go for a $200 lunch, right? Depending on your financial background, the lunch place will be decided too. Where you live, how you dress, and everything. Do you have a car? Like in Singapore, I know cars are very expensive. Yeah. You know, I I have four cars. And then I think if I just tell uh, people in Singapore, like, you have four cars, (laughs) you know, and they'll be probably shocked. So there is this limiting belief that once... You think money a certain way, like money has to be earned by working hard for your job. We'll be bound by money beliefs. And then uh, that determines how much money we have, how much money we make.
1: People tend to set out to prove themselves right about things, don't they? So when people have beliefs like, oh, I'm I'm not supposed to have a big career. This kind of life isn't meant for me. I, you know, I come from a small town without much money. Well, I might want another kind of life. I'm not Meant to live any other kind of life. People prove themselves right, and people also, I think, feel that way about money. And as an example, i realised that one of my limiting beliefs is that I never thought that I could be a a breadwinner, that I could earn an, enough money to support a family. So I grew up in quite a tr- traditional gender rolled household. My father went out to bring home the bacon. My mother stayed at home, and, and this was very normal in the community I grew up in, as it is for a lot of people. Therefore, as I realized this over the past few years, I've never really chased money because in the back of my mind, buried deep in there, this feels so embarrassing to admit really, I have always been thinking, oh, well, I'm never going to be able to do that. Is this something you've heard much of before?
0: Yes there's all kinds you know mm. and if you're a first son, you have to come back to your uh, uh, original house you know mm. like if you've come from a countryside, you're supposed to go back and become a farmer or something you know yeah. It's more so in China and Japan and Korea where you know a- more Asian yeah. and I think yeah. in North America or Europe, there are different kinds of belief system, but it depends on your ethnicity too. If you come from Latin culture, like Mexico or Costa Rica, you have totally different uh, mindset. So, you know, it fascinates me. There's no right or wrong. It's just how do you want to choose your uh, belief system and, and how you want to live your life. We are like taught one career, one partner, one house, right? Life is easier, more simple if we have one partner, but you know, in an Arabic country, you're allowed, like Indonesia, you're allowed four wives, right? And also, you're allowed to have three or four houses if you want. And then you can have a multiple career. For example, I'm a speaker, I'm a writer, I have uh, other business as well. But a lot of people choose only one job and then one source of income. So wealthy people think very differently from uh, not wealthy people. So unless somebody teaches you how to just deal with money, you are so naive. You just work in one job and they get paid. And in that uh, money, in the budget, you spend very carefully. But if you're just a single uh, income household uh, or double income household, you just spend for your necessities and a little extra trip and stuff. Not much uh, money will be left. That's the law of the, this whole society unfortunately. So unless you get smart with money, IQ, money, EQ, you cannot find abundance in your life.
1: Mm. So in terms of getting smart with money, when you're advising people in a very practical sense, uh, you just mentioned having multiple sources of income. I mean, what's the the ideal situation that people should be striving for?
0: So for example, uh, a lot of people have one job, you work, you get paid every week or every month, and then that's it. And also, if you are self-employed, you work for a project and then you send an invoice and then you get paid from a client, that's it. Like wealthy people or financially independent people get multiple times for the job you did in the past. For example, just imagine a photographer taking a family photo 20 years ago. Do you think uh, a person with a, an old photo comes back to you and say, thank you, people. you took a beautiful picture? And I really appreciate you, so can I pay you another $500, you know, for the picture you took 20 years ago? Because it um, brings me so much happiness. Look at, you know, how torn it is. Mm. Unfortunately, something like that doesn't happen. Because in our reality, once you work something, you get paid, that's it. But just think about the easiest example, like my books I wrote four years ago. Now it's been translated into 32 languages. And then I get paid from Greek company, Russian company, Spanish, Portuguese, Chinese. So uh, the work I did, I wrote this five years ago, right? And then it's still paying me. And also, I wrote a national bestseller 20 years ago. I sold about 2 million copies. It's still printing uh, like 30,000 to 60,000 copies every year. So my 33 uh, or 4-year-old younger king, younger me, is still working with me because he's bringing me almost like a yearly salary that uh, people make. And so does my 36, year old my 40-year-old, my 44-years-old because some of them is turning into a property that I own and then I get a rent, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, wealthy people get paid multiple times and they have younger version. Think about this. So when I, I teach financial independence seminar, Uh, Ask people, do you have your younger version of you still working with you? A lot of people in their 40s and 50s, damn, I never taught my younger me to send me money. If you do it right, you can have younger you send your money. And if you're smart and you can just start right now, can you send money for the future? So, for example, the work you do now, are you going to send money to 2027? You? Or you're not sending a penny. So the way you work determines how wealthy you will be in three years.
1: Gosh, I'm really wishing younger Pippa had, <laughs> had been sending me a bit more money about now.
0: Right. But you can just start now and just start yeah. being creative. And, and a lot of people say, Oh, I cannot write a book. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm t- teaching you the concept. So you can just translate it into your life, but it's just just one knowledge, right? I have so much knowledge about these things, and I'm, and I've learned from my mentors, you know. Uh, but I think for a lot of people, like wow, I never heard of it. I never thought about that, right? I never mm. thought of younger version of me working for me. Like you may hire somebody for an assistant, that's understandable, but you cannot imagine younger you is working for you, right?
1: Hmm. I really, I really like thinking about it like that. That's really interesting. You know, I've realised that one of my beliefs about money is that to want money is to be greedy. To ask for a pay rise is to be greedy. To care too much about money is materialistic. Uh, is this something that you've heard?
0: Of course, especially Christian background. You know I- I went to a a Jesuit Christian school, so they taught me about money in a Christian way. So, the funny, I'm Japanese, but part of me is Christian, you know. Mm. I I love it. And also, at the same time, around money, I have this funny guilt around money. (laughs) So, I can really relate to people who have this religious guilt around money. And, of course, you know, it's your birthright to ask for a raise. But it's Mm. more of, are you worth getting a raise, Because some people say, I deserve a higher pay, like a sense of entitlement. Mm. But if you haven't done the right work, you don't get paid. Yeah, like They'll find somebody else for you. But if uh, you say uh, to your boss, can I get a raise? And if the boss says, yeah, I haven't given you a raise for a while, I think you deserve it. So the boss will tell you you're worth it. So just tell your boss tomorrow... I'm going to quit this company. And if they say, no, 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 please don't. You know, uh, Pippa, you're so worth uh millions for our company. So please stay. How much raise do you want? If the quality of your work is good, uh, your boss will be begging you. Mm. And if you say, you know, I- I'm going to quit this company tomorrow. If the quality is bad, he'll be smiling. Oh, thank you. Are you going to leave your company? Thank you. You know, and so uh, you can tell it's very fair that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, asking for a pay rise is such a dreaded conversation. My emotional reaction, apart from that I feel like I'm greedy to ask for more, it's also, I I don't know, I feel almost a bit embarrassed having the conversation. Like to say, I think I'm worth more than this. I feel like someone's going to turn around and say, who the hell
0: do you think you are? (laughs) Yes, exactly. So I think some of the uh, listeners could be a coach coaches and mm-hmm. counselors right often they ask me how can i uh, raise my fee you know so uh, i always tell this like if people show up at the higher rate your raise was just fair mm-hmm. if people don't show up that means you you didn't give them enough value so if you have given enough value people will keep showing up so it's not how you raise your money it's just almost like a test if you have given so much value and if your uh, session was $200 or euros, and then you make it to $300 or euros, if clients find that it's worth it, they'll come. If people think you're re- ripping off, they will not come. So that's so simple and fair. So you can just say, I'll raise my fee. Are you still you know, interested in coming? And if they say yes, you, you've you done good job. And technically speaking, since... I'd advise you to have a buffer zone. So say from 2024, April to August, we are going to have this amount. But from September, we're going to raise a price by 50 euros, $50, right? And, And also for new clients, you can start raising a fee. That could be easier. So for ongoing clients from April to August, we'll keep the same price. And then the new clients will pay like 300 euros instead of 200 from April. So if you let your clients know that your fee will will go up in six months and if new people are paying more than you do, you kind of like make your clients get prepared for the raise. So the bad idea is I'm going to raise my fee from 200 to 300 and then send out emails because I, I deserve it. You know, that doesn't really work. So give it like a few months buffer zone so people, your clients can get ready.
1: That makes sense. Makes sense. So there's a statistic that I was thinking about earlier. It was researched from a while ago and it's 61% of women would rather discuss death than their finances. When it was opened up to to both men and women, I think it was 44%. So men find this a bit easier. But still, there's a lot of people that find talking about money and their finances so uncomfortable. Yeah, they'd rather talk about their own death.
0: I just I'm finding out that especially in Western culture, money is such a taboo. I thought Mm -hmm. you are very open to it. But In fact, it brings out so much shame and guilt and, you know, funny feelings around it. Mm. But the funny thing is I was chatting with a uh, few people in in America and then I found out that even among very good friends or even a couple, you don't know how much you're making among your friends. Mm. But in Japan, I went to my high school reunion and college reunion for like 20, 30 years. And then we casually talk about how much money we make. And then, when yeah. we found out that you know, Pippa, you're making the most money. Pippa, drinks on you, Pippa. And, and everybody's <laughs> like, yeah, great, congratulations. So, you know, it's very, it's more open. And the funny thing is, for example, European people and American people are more openly talking about their sexual life, mm. where in Japan, nobody talks about that. So when you get shocked by uh, Japanese friends asking you how much uh, you make last year, mm. you can ask him or her, you know, the Japanese, about their s- social and sexual life. And they'll have the same reaction, <laughs> you know, like, you are asking me that. <laughs> so it's a cultural difference, you know, the taboos are everywhere in a different part.
1: Quick interruption. Just to let you know, this podcast is brought to you by Tiger Hall, the knowledge infrastructure for Fortune 500 firms. Just as I am now, for Tiger Hall, I interview global top business executives and industry experts on topics that help employees and organizations drive change and get ahead. If you're an executive driving large transformational change across your organization, we could help you get that done much faster through the power of knowledge sharing in the flow of work. Check us out at tigerhall.com. Oh, that's so interesting. So in terms of sort of funny, funny feelings about money, funny emotions about money, my husband very sensibly suggested, why don't we sit down, look at our expenses? We need to understand, you know, what's coming in, what's going out. Very, very sensible suggestion. I found this process so horrible, Ken. I found it really emotional. It almost sort of brought out this little child inside me. I was on the verge of some sort of tantrum. I hated looking through my bank statement. From your research and understanding of people's emotional reaction to money, why was I getting so stressed
0: doing this? I think it's almost like people are just opening up your clothes, right? And yeah, it's because <laughs> uh, you feel so vulnerable.
1: Mm.
0: It's not like how much money you make or how much money you have. Like your, your privacy is invaded. You know, it's not such a shameful numbers. You're just paying for. You know, five dollars for sandwiches and stuff like that. I mean, each individual expense is not so uncomfortable, but when it adds up, like you're spending so much, like oh, am I spending so much? Oh, I'm sorry, you know. What <laughs> the, the electricity bill so high? Oh, I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> because the expenses is like something that rips your life energy out of your mm-hmm. life, and then the reason why people, not only you, people. People feel uncomfortable is that you don't have everything under control. So that's why you'd feel uncomfortable. And then it's almost like a grade when you're back in school, when you know you didn't do well. And then the teacher comes in and the, and your parents and siblings, ta-da, I'm going to disclose people's, you know, score three, two, one, ta-da. Like, oh my God. <laughs> I know I didn't do well. So if you did feel like you did it well, Okay, you know, let's see, did I score 95 or 98? But you know, you really messed up. So like, it's almost like a shame. Yeah. You know, uh, some people say talking about numbers is almost like a crucifixion <laughs> or execution <laughs> because it's like death sentence. You're bad, you know, you're terrible. So you're being branded as irresponsible, incapable, and worthless person. So that is a feeling you're just touching. So it's almost like scratching the scars that you had. It's not really healed yet. So uh, healing money wounds is uh, part of my passion. Mm. Because uh, after healing your money wounds and money scars, you feel so free. Because to begin with, there's nothing shameful about that. Because money is money. But it's so tied up with our self-worth. So we feel like... Once they touch this, I mean, you feel like so vulnerable. Mm.
1: I think that's right. It, it felt like it felt incredibly vulnerable. It, almost like showing the mortgage provider my diary or something. Yeah, it, it felt really yeah. exposing. Especially an really
0: embarrassing diary, right?
1: Yes. <laughs> oh <laughs> she spent how much on drinks that month? Like, yeah, it's embarrassing. <laughs> so you, you just mentioned money wounds. Could you talk to us a little bit more about these? How can we fix these money wounds that so many of us have?
0: So I remember when I was seven years old, I wanted a mountain bike for my birthday uh, gift, Mm. which is a little bit, you know, like big. So it was a dream, you know, so I I couldn't ask for it. But if my parents gave it to me, I'd be in heaven. So I I, I just finally brought it up. I wanted a mountain bike. And what my father, my mother said is, oh, that is too expensive for you. But what they really meant was, uh, it's too early for you to get on a mountain bike. And in fact, like three months later, I got cut so deep here, you know, with a, a, a other bike. So they were right, you know, I wasn't ready for the mountain bike. But still, I was told, like, you're not worth it, you know, you're a bad boy, you're not worth the mountain bike, is what I mm-hmm. took, it, right? Mm-hmm. So. I was so hurt, and I don't remember what I got f- for my birthday present, you know, because uh, the, the hurt was so big. I don't remember, I asked my parents later on, they, they didn't remember, so it was such a big shock, I just had lost my memory around the time. So, oh, okay. uh, yeah, and I'm sure you, ha- you were denied for your soccer lessons, ballet lessons, or summer camps, or like trip to Disneyland, or whatever that is, your hurt is still bleeding. So, when you want to strike out your life and start your own business, when you want to transfer a job, when you want to move out of your country and just start exploring your world, this voice is telling you, you're not worth it. You're not Mm. ready. So, it's almost like a subconscious curse. And that is based on uh, misunderstanding.
1: Yeah. Is this why money wounds? People who grew up without much money and then suddenly come into a lot of money why you know why people who win the lottery it's often a curse because they don't know how to handle that money because there's so much negative emotion tied to to the money
0: yes uh, I call it money container you know everyone mm. is born with a certain money container and then say if you're a school teacher for kids and then you win like a five million it's gonna make a crack because it, the money energy is so big and then you cannot hold a money container. Money container grows slowly. So if uh, you start your own business like IT and then your company grows so fast and then it will really crack your container and the famous musicians and, you know, um, movie stars, they get $20 million deal and also like somebody like Mike Tyson or the baseball player, they get so much money. But after a few years after they just retire, they're going to lose all that money because they don't know. You know, they they may know how to throw a ball or just doing American football, but they're not trained to play with money. So that's why they end up losing a lot of money.
1: Okay, Ken, I'm asking everyone who comes on this podcast to share some of their own limiting beliefs they have or times where self-doubt got in the way. What can you share with us?
0: So my tendency is to stay small. So I feel so scared. I feel so shameful. I feel so restricted when I do something in English. So that used to be my limiting belief. Now I'm more visible, but still I feel shy in front of an interviewer like yourself. Uh, I feel small and I, I want to hide. You know, I feel so not shameful, but embarrassment more, but I'm trying to come out of my, you know, small hiding place.
1: That's crazy to me. Like you feel shy around me? It <laughs> should be the other way around. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So whoever that is, I feel so small. Mm. So people think I'm humble. No, in fact, I'm feeling small. <laughs> so that's it. Yeah. So I, I cannot say like, I sold I mean, copies of my books. You know, I feel like uh, just a, a child. Like, oh, am I okay? Did I, did I you know, answer my qu- your question okay? That insecurity is always just uh, making me small.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I definitely relate to that. And one thing I've heard you say is that when your first book came out, and it wasn't an immediate bestseller like you hoped it would be, that this triggered a lot of self-doubt, self-criticism, a lot of disappointment. Can you tell us about this?
0: I had this hallucination. My book will come out, and then it becomes number one, and then I instantly become a national bestselling selling author, mm-hmm. because that's the vision I had. And so, it's almost like I felt betrayed by God or somebody who said, "Can you be a a national best-selling author. Well, you lied to me. You know, I wrote the book. It it didn't happen. It took me a while. It took me two, three years. So, I kept on going. If I stopped somewhere in between, I'd become like a a former writer. But Mm -hmm. uh, since I believed in my vision, I kept on going. And so, it it happened. But uh, in reality... Success and money will follow you after a certain time. And it's always like that. So don't get depressed, even if it doesn't bring you into instant success. It doesn't happen that way.
1: It's a real lesson. I mean, we're also impatient, right? We want success to come instantly. If you put a lot of work into something, you want to reap the rewards straight away.
0: Yes, it takes so uh, much time. I, I, like, I, I wrote this book four years ago mm. and it'll become international success in two months. <laughs> but wow. it, finally, it's catching up in like a uh, Spanish speaking country. The videos of my books, you know, I didn't do anything. They just created a short movie and it, it went viral uh, like 40. 50 million people are watching it. Like, who made this without asking me? And uh, I'm happy, but like, I don't know what's going on. It's just very interesting. And also in Eng- English, too. Uh, when I walk down in the street in Helsinki, in London cafe, people can spot me and then, wow, you can Honda. And I read your book. Like, oh my God, you know, so yeah. I feel so honored and flattered that people talk to me on the street mm. like that.
1: There'll be so many people, thousands of people around the world that are so grateful you didn't give up when you had that initial, initial disappointment that it hadn't quite gone to plan.
0: Yeah. So I, I, st- I still feel discouraged, you know, after showing up on one interview, sometimes I have to get up at five in the morning and I don't get paid. Is this like, you know, taking me somewhere, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I just made it a role. And in fact, uh, 80% or 90% of what I do now, I don't get paid. But it's okay because this is my life, this is my passion and uh, the rest 20% pay me so well. So you know I used to make sure like decades ago I wanted to get paid so that way I don't lose money. But now uh, I dedicate my life to whoever wants to uh, share my knowledge, I'm ha- I'll be there. So I'm just, I'll just start another world tour. You know, from mm-hmm. Europe and I think I'll probably stop over in, in Singapore sometime in May, you know. Oh, or, let me know. Yeah. So I will just start just exploring in Europe and Australia and India and North and South America. Sometimes I would get paid. Sometimes I don't, but it's okay. This is my life. And, and, and so I'm so enjoying this. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear.
1: Okay. Ken, I'm asking everyone the same wrap up question. And this is the question that I asked Paul Dupuy and it's why he recommended you. I'm asking everyone if they can nominate someone to come on this podcast, someone that you think is absolutely brilliant and who you think would have a really interesting story to share and perspective about self-doubt and limiting beliefs.
0: Oh, well, I have so many friends, but I'll just come up with a few names. Janet Atwood, who is a creator of Passion Test. She was a catalyst for movie Secret, and I really adore her. And uh, Kurt Blackson, Who's a good friend of mine who wrote many number one bestsellers? Uh, he's also from UK too, so I, mm. I can just give you the contacts if yeah. you want. Yes.
1: Oh, that would be fantastic! All right, Ken, those are amazing recommendations. I can't wait to to research them and hopefully meet them. Okay, Ken, it's been such a joy to speak to you. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it. How much I've enjoyed researching you. So Yeah, thank you so so much.
0: Yes, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Therapy. You made it to the end, which makes me so happy. I really hope you got something from this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could subscribe to Tiger Therapy on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. The more subscribers we get, the more people will find us, and then the bigger and better guests we'll be able to have on. A big thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, including our brilliant guest and, of course, the team at Tiger Hall.